You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In a death penalty case, Arizona did end runs around Supreme Court precedent, creating a procedural maze that blocked a death row inmate's relief at every turn, reminding Justice Elena Kagan of the works of Kafka. I think Kafka would have loved this. Um, Cruz loses his Simmons claims on direct appeal. Because the Arizona courts say point blank, Simmons has never applied in Arizona. And then he loses the next time around because the Arizona courts say Simmons always applied in California. I mean, tails you win, heads I lose, whatever that expression is. I mean, how, how, how can you run a, a, a railroad that way? For decades, Arizona refused to follow Supreme Court precedent established in the 1994 Simmons case which gave defendants facing the death penalty the right to tell juries that if they spared them from the death penalty, they would never be eligible for parole. So in 2016, the Supreme Court specifically instructed Arizona to follow that law. But Arizona denied John Cruz that instruction at his trial and then used a state procedural law to stop him from seeking reversal of his death sentence. Many of the justices seem troubled by Arizona flouting the Supreme Court. Here's Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Simmons made clear that this is what the law was. So many times Arizona said we're not following it, and we had to have lynch in order to really cinch the deal. One thing I'm a little worried about is that if we rule in your favor in this case, that it will be giving other states essentially a roadmap um, for defying this court's criminal law decisions. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Reporter. This appeal is not about the defendant's guilt, but about his sentence. Tell us a little about the case and what happened during the penalty phase. Sure. So John Cruz was convicted in Arizona State Court of first-degree murder for shooting Tucson police officer Patrick Hardesty in 2003. But it wasn't Cruz's guilt, but his sentence that prompted the issue at the Supreme Court. So at the sentencing phase, Cruz wanted the jury to know that he would have been ineligible for parole if he was sentenced to life instead of death. And that actually wound up being a really important issue because we know that the jury foreman actually later said that they were looking for a reason to be lenient. But Arizona didn't allow that at the time. 
And that was despite an earlier U.S. Supreme Court precedent from 1994 called Simmons, which said that defendants have the right to inform juries of their parole and eligibility in that situation when their future danger is at issue. So for decades, Arizona refuses to follow that Supreme Court rule. So then the court basically tells Arizona directly, this is the rule, you have to follow it. That's right. So the Simmons case happened at the Supreme Court in 1994. Cruz was prosecuted in Arizona after that. But then there was an Arizona case that went to the Supreme Court after Cruz was sentenced called Lynch against Arizona in 2016, where the U.S. Supreme Court basically told Arizona, you have to apply this precedent, Simmons. And so Cruz had previously raised a challenge before the Lynch case, trying to argue that he should have been able to tell the jury about his parole and eligibility status based on Simmons. Then after Lynch, after the U.S. Supreme Court told Arizona, you have to apply our precedent, Cruz tried again, but he was rejected again in state court. And that's what prompted this U.S. Supreme Court appeal, this kind of ping-ponging back and forth and Cruz's repeated attempts and repeated rejections to try and get the benefit of this U.S. Supreme Court precedent in the Simmons case. So that's why Justice Elena Kagan said Kafka would have loved this case? Exactly. So the way she put it, she says, Kafka would have loved this because Cruz loses his Simmons claim on direct appeal in the first instance before the Lynch case, and then he tries again, and the reason he loses, according to the state, is because, no, Simmons has actually always applied. It was just that Lynch told Arizona that it had to then apply the law. So it wasn't what's called a significant change in the law, according to Arizona, and that's super important for this case because it all comes down to this state procedural rule, which says that on post-conviction, like what Cruz was trying to raise, he can only get the benefit if there was a significant change in law. And according to Arizona, the lynch holding wasn't a significant change. I thought it was odd that the state was still arguing in its briefs that Simmons and Lynch were wrongly decided by the court. And Justice Kagan told Arizona's attorney, Joseph Canefield, that she found that shocking and perhaps a bit insulting. In this case, you're still saying... Like Lynch is wrongly decided, Simmons is wrongly decided, we can't really, we just really hate all this stuff. It sounds like you're thumbing your nose at us. Justice Kagan, there's absolutely no disrespect was intended by that footnote to the court, and I apologize if that's the way it it came across. Tell us about Arizona's arguments. So Arizona takes this sort of hyper-technical reading. They're saying it's just a state issue that in the first instance it shouldn't even get to the U.S. Supreme Court because it's a state court dealing with a state procedural rule. And so there is this kind of threshold issue at the U.S. Supreme Court of whether the justices can even really take a look at this because it's a state issue. And so there's this initial argument of whether we're even getting into the territory of dealing with the type of federal issue that the U.S. Supreme Court can grapple with. And so that's one of Arizona's arguments, that the U.S. Supreme Court really shouldn't even be getting involved. That's part of it. Another part is, according to this state procedural rule, they're saying it wasn't a significant change in law despite how much that might seem to fly in the face of common sense, as Justice Kagan was pointing out during the argument. They're saying it's not a significant change. It's just now an application of the law. And so that's what brings up this situation where Kagan is pointing out that Cruz is blocked in this procedural maze, no matter in which direction he turns. It seemed like several of the conservative justices were hanging on that threshold procedural issue. 
For sure. And so Justice Thomas's first question to Neil Kotyal, who is representing Cruz, was how do we get to this federal issue? So it's that threshold matter where if you buy what Justice Thomas was alluding to, if he has a majority that agrees with him, then it could be that the court isn't even going to delve into some of the more detail about how this procedural rule works. And so that's one issue that could be bad news for Cruz if there is a majority that agrees with Justice Thomas, if his question did in fact indicate that that's where the justice is heading. During the arguments, it seemed like you had the justices on the far left and the far right. What about the justices that might turn out to be key here, Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh? So they each made a couple of interesting comments that might suggest that they might be inclined to vote with Cruz, although I'm not entirely sure. Justice Barrett, she raised a point of questioning that was almost similar to what Justice Kagan was saying. Barrett didn't go so far as to call it Kafkaesque, but she called the state's position kind of artificial. She said it was hair splitting. So Barrett, even if she wasn't going as far as Kagan, she was in that similar type of mold in that she was questioning at a very basic level the position that Arizona took. So that could be a potential fourth vote if you're counting the three Democratic appointees plus Barrett. I'm not totally convinced, but that could be. And then you have Justice Kavanaugh. He made a comment later in the argument, which I don't think was really as strong as Barrett's against the state. But Kavanaugh noted that there wasn't other states supporting Arizona, like you might see in some of these state cases where even if a state is isn't directly at issue, it'll file a friend of the court brief at the Supreme Court. We sometimes see these huge coalitions of states that are supporting another state because they're worried about how this is going to impact their criminal justice system. And so there wasn't any of that in this case. And Kavanaugh sort of casually brought that up. So I didn't hear Kavanaugh as strongly against the state as Barrett. And Kavanaugh also, I have found, plays devil's advocate more than any other justice. So I haven't found his comments at oral argument to be super helpful in terms of finding where he'll land. And so I do think it's possible that Cruz could still win this, given what Kagan is putting at the Kafka-esque nature of it. But still at this court, I think you're facing an uphill battle when you're bringing a claim from death row, no matter what the particulars are of the case. How many of the justices were concerned that Arizona just didn't follow the rules they set out? So I think you could definitely read that concern into at least Kagan and Sotomayor's questioning. I do think that Chief Justice Roberts also over the years has displayed that type of concern when states are in the extreme, sort of thumbing its nose to use Kagan's word in this case at the court. So I do think there is that concern that's present. Again, the Supreme Court took the rare step of reversing in that Lynch case in 2016. And so obviously the court knows that Arizona is sort of a troublemaker in this regard, mm-hmm. sort of like Texas has been in some other death penalty cases where Texas has been reversed its state top court. So I see a similarity there between what's going on. No one has came out and as strongly said that as Jackson did, but I think that concern was lurking in the background. I just don't know at the end of the day whether that's going to carry the day for Cruz by a majority of the court. And did it seem as if Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and the chief were against the defendant getting a new trial? I think that's fair to say. Roberts might have gone both ways a little bit, but I think that's true as to the first three. This could be, again, because Arizona has been kind of smacked down by the court before. And I should point out that in that Lynch case from 2016, this was over dissent by Thomas and Alito. And so that was before 
Gorsuch was on the court. So still, it's not a majority of the current court that might agree with Thomas and Alito there, but they might have more of a coalition than they did in 2016. And so I do think that it's possible for Cruz to win, and I don't always say that coming out of every death penalty type argument. So that bodes well for him, but still, I'm not going to be comfortable staying until I see that opinion actually cementing the type of view that Kagan raised until I can believe it. (laughs) Yeah, with this court, you have to see it to believe it. And this case is important to some of the other inmates on death row in Arizona who are in the same situation. Neil Katyal, who, as you said, represented Cruz, said at least 12 inmates on death row had their appeals under Simmons rejected like Cruz. So this could open up a can of worms. Oh, for sure. And I've seen the number put at as high as 30 inmates in Arizona who could be affected by this issue. So even if it does wind up being just an Arizona-specific issue, it's hugely important even on just the state level. Thanks so much for being on the show, Jordan. That's Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. For almost as long as affirmative action policies have been used in college admissions, there have been legal battles over whether they should be allowed. Now, more than 40 years after the Supreme Court first considered the matter, the conservative justices appear to be ready to eliminate racial considerations in shaping a student body. Joining me is Audrey Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass Barry and Sims. So let me ask you the big question first. Coming into this argument... Most legal experts thought that affirmative action was on the cutting block. Did anything in the oral arguments indicate otherwise? No, 
Not really. The only little asterisk I put on that is, you know, there were a lot of questions, June, about this 25-year deadline of sorts. Language in the Grutter case where Justice O'Connor, who wrote the majority opinion, said that it was the court's expectation that affirmative action would not be necessary in 25 years. And there were a lot of questions to both sides about what does that mean? What should we make of that? And at one point, Justice Barrett said, well, you know, it's not 25 years yet. That was a kind of only ray of sunshine I saw (laughs) if you were a supporter of affirmative action, that maybe she would think about, well, we should let it hang in there for a few more years. The Grutter decision was 2003, so that would get you till 2008. But I just say that mostly as a you never know. Other than that, I didn't hear anything to made me think that we'll get any decision other than an overruling of Grutter. I mean, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, how important is diversity? Justice Clarence Thomas said he didn't have a clue what diversity means. Well, I think what you heard, June, was, you know, Justice Thomas has never agreed. He didn't agree with Grutter. And he hasn't, he's, he's made a point of dissenting from all of the affirmative action cases. So I think he was just trying to make his point again that he doesn't believe in this diversity nonsense um, from his perspective. And so he was just giving every advocate a, a, an ability to change his mind, which I don't think was changed um, in the least. You got the same kind of questions out of Justice Gorsuch. This is his first chance to think about this kind of thing, but his questioning was about how can we really do diversity without taking numbers into account? And that's been kind of the rock and a hard place you're in that the court has said you can't have a quota, but you have to have some kind of a goal you have that you're trying to get. So how do you have a diversity goal that you can narrowly tailor to without having a number that looks like a quota. So we got that kind of questioning from Justice Gorsuch. And then you had questioning from Justice Alito, who's been against these kind of programs and has dissented from them on the lines of how can you put together all the kinds of people you're putting together in the category of Asian Americans? How can you put together people from Afghanistan and people from China or Japan all in the same category? And doesn't that make this just all suspect and unconstitutional? So you had those kinds of questions from people on the right who you would expect to say that this is uh, against the Constitution. Justice Jackson spoke a great deal. What did Mm -hmm. you get from her comments? I know that Justice Jackson had some really very, very interesting comments. You know, a lot of what the court talked about was not whether we should overturn Grutter, but what will happen when. So if we overturn Grutter, what will universities be able to do? How at all will they be able to consider race? And so in that line up, we got some of the other justices saying, well, if an applicant wrote about race on her application and wrote about how she was a Hispanic and she had overcome some discrimination, of course a university could consider that. And it seemed like everybody was kind of on board with that. And I think that Justice Jackson came forward with a very interesting hypothetical to say, well, you're all saying that the minority applicant can have overcoming discrimination taken account of, but what if you have an applicant who's just saying, 
look, I'm um, a black applicant. I've lived in North Carolina all my life, and none of my family has ever been able to go to the University of North Carolina, partly because I come from slaves. And my people have not been allowed into your university, and it's really important for me to be able to get in because to show that I finally have this kind of an opportunity, I want to honor my family's legacy. Could you consider that? In the same way that if a white student wrote in and said, my family has lived in North Carolina for hundreds of years, and I have this long legacy of family members who have all attended UNC, and it's really important for me to um, honor that legacy, the university would be able to consider that in terms of admissions, but they wouldn't be able to consider the black student family history because it would be considering something based on race. Yeah. And the advocate said, yeah, you're right. They wouldn't be able to. At one point, Justice Neil Gorsuch suggested that universities might be able to improve diversity by eliminating preferences given to athletes, he mentioned squash, and the children of alumni and big money donors. If they come out against affirmative action here, does that mean that universities can consider all those other things, but not race? And of course, you have to look at race differently because there is something in the Constitution about it. And regardless of what the court decides out of the arguments today, universities will still be able to consider whether somebody plays squash or the tuba when they're (laughs) allowing people into their entering class. And there's always going to be um, particular needs that universities have that they're going to pick people for. And race does have to be different. But Then you do get kind of to the question, and I think that Justice Kagan said, you know, what if there was a point in time where a university found that it was only getting 30% men in its class using gender-neutral criteria, so it decided it needed to be more aware of gender so that it got closer to 50-50. You could then have a situation where white men were getting a thumb on the scale and people of color were not. Now, of course, the advocate said, well, it wouldn't be white men, it would be all men. And she's like, well, yeah, but white men, too. (laughs) (laughs) We'd be getting a thumb on the scale. And, you know, that's true. And I think that what I I was actually a little bit encouraged, frankly, to hear so many members of the court agreeing that if Carter's overruled, universities could take into account race if an applicant brought it up in their essay. I've been very afraid that the next step that Students for Fair Admissions and others like them would take would be to say that colorblind means colorblind. If somebody talks about race, the university really cannot consider it at all, almost like you'd have to first have a clean team go through the applications and redact anything that had race in it. And I'm so not sure we won't see that if Grutter's overturned, but You know, the court here was saying, well, no, it's it's not going to be that crazy. What we're saying is not that crazy, everybody. I think that's where they were going with these questions. There was a lot of talk about the box on the common application where you can check and disclose your race. Do you think that that will be gone after this decision? Right, when it wasn't even the university that requires it on the darn common application. I don't know that they'll take it off the common application because the federal government also asked universities to report on the racial composition of their classes. Now, that's not information that they get off the common application. 
I think they get that in another way from their students when they actually enroll. But, you know, that they're so worked up about checking a box on forms. Well, the EEOC tells employers that you're supposed to ask your employees to check that same set of boxes. Now, you don't have to, but they ask you to check those same set of boxes. The same set of boxes we're asked to check when we fill out the census. So the obsession with it's some horrible thing to be asked to check those categories kind of ignores a whole lot of other places where we're asked to check the categories. Whether they'll get rid of in the common application or not, you know, I don't know. Right now, universities are allowed to consider race as a factor. Correct. As long as it's part of a holistic application process where race is only one factor and the use of race is narrowly tailored to their compelling interest in educational diversity. Is this the first affirmative action case where the challengers are swinging for the fences? They want no reference to race at all in college admissions. Well, that's where it's interesting. They want they want college admission systems to be colorblind, not race conscious. What you just said is what I thought they might be doing, but the questions today were applicants still can reference their race if they want to talk about their race being an important part of who they are. They could still do that in their application. And the college could consider how they talk about that in context. They just can't have a system that says, and you get a plus for your racial identity, which is what it is now. Now you can get a plus for your racial identity. It seems like the trials in these cases were a waste of time if they're now going to change up the system and eliminate race as a factor. Yes, yes. That, and that's, it's really pretty stunning. At, you know, at one point, the Solicitor General mentioned that the court's Their usual rule that where a district court finds facts at a trial and then they are affirmed by the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court really doesn't review those facts again. For them to then look at those facts and say, oh, there's something wrong is really, really extraordinary. But a lot of the questions that were being asked today, Justice Thomas's questions in particular, and some of the other questions as well of Uh, The advocates in both cases showed that the conservative members of the court were very willing to ignore that usual practice they have and to second-guess the fact-finding by these judges who each wrote, you know, very lengthy opinions based on voluminous records at trial. And they're they're willing to say, no, I don't agree with your facts. I think that the tables that are uh, in this, these two pages of the brief show that there's discrimination with, no, I don't need to know anything else other than the, the tables on these pages of the brief, of my appellate brief. Is there any difference in the Harvard case as opposed to the UNC case? You know, the, the wild card, right, is that um, Justice Jackson is part of the court for the UNC case, and she has recused herself from the Harvard case. So she won't be writing anything in the Harvard case. I don't think that that's going to make a difference to the outcome. And if either of the cases, they have enough votes to overrule Grutter, it's done. So that's why I think it won't really matter. But you could get some differences in the opinions. The other thing that Justice Jackson seemed a little bit interested in was whether the plaintiffs in the UNC case have standing. 
she brought that up more than once. So we may get something from her on standing in UNC. I think we'll get a lot of different opinions in these cases. I think it'll be complicated. We will find out in June. Thanks so much, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson. She's head of the higher education practice at Bass, Barry, and Sims. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.